You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back, my Freedom Pact family. Today on the show, we are joined by Morgan Housel. Morgan is a partner at the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at the Motley Fool in the Wall Street Journal. Morgan is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, winner of the New York Times Sydney Award, and a two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. Morgan has just released a new book, I've got it right in front of me. It is called The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. So as you can guess, this episode is all about making money, keeping money, and managing your money. In this episode, we talk all about getting wealthy versus staying wealthy, why wealth is everything that you don't see. We talk about countless examples of people that play a great defensive game, they don't look wealthy and then towards their end of their life they have a secret fortune hidden away, talk about all different kinds of money tips, luck, Uh, we talk about the man in the car paradox which I found amazingly fascinating. So I won't waste any more time boring you with the details, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the financial guru. Morgan Housel. Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. My pleasure. So Morgan, so your latest book is The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed and Happiness. I thought the book was fantastic, man. So I want to kick this conversation off um, on a point that you make later on in the book. And you say, less ego more wealth. So what's the relationship between ego and wealth? I think the, the big thing to consider here is that being happy with your money has two parts. One is how much money you have and the other is how much you expect. And the happiness that you get from your money is actually the gap between those two. It's not so whether how wealthy you feel and how happy you are, how satisfied with you are with your money has little to do with how much you have, how much you earn and a lot to do with the gap between what you have and what you expect. Now, is there a limit to this? Yes, there is a basic level of human necessities, of course, that a lot of people in the world don't have. So I need to be sensitive about that. But the, the broader point is if your expectations grow as fast as your income, if you're lucky enough to have a growing income, you're not gonna feel better off over time. And a lot of the growth in our expectations is just the growth in our ego. Uh, it's just our ability to show the world that we've made it, to show the world that we have money, in a way that doesn't really bring us a lot of necessarily utility, but it's a social signaling. And social signaling is very important. I'm not saying you want zero of that. That's not the case. It's not the case for me. This is not black and white. But I I do think that the key for being happy with your money is getting your expectations to grow slower than your income. I think that's so incredibly important. And for most of the people listening to this, at least, 
the growth in your expectations is going to be a function of your ego. So if you can try to tame that part, uh, and, but here's what's important is that when we talk about money, we almost always talk about growing your income and growing your wealth, growing your assets. And, and we focus on that. And I think that's important. That's a great topic that I like talking about. It's an important topic, but managing your expectations is equally important. And we almost never talk about it in the, in the context of how to be happier with our money. I love that, man. So I would love to jump on this point with the rich man in the car paradox, which you talk about in the book. And I love this. Um, so when people tell you that say that they want to be millionaires, does that mean that secretly that they just want to spend millions for the signal? <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, that's, 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 I make this point in the book where, um, sorry, I have, I have no idea what happened there. Uh, I, I made, made this point in the book where, uh, a lot of people, particularly young men in particular, not to single out a group, and I'm definitely singling out that group. If a young man says, I want to be a millionaire, I think if you actually dig into what they mean, what they mean is I want to spend a million dollars. And that is, and that is the opposite of being a millionaire. And this gets back to, I, I think there's a fundamental point here about what is the purpose of money? And I get, I, to me, you can break it into two really clean buckets. One is something to buy stuff with, to buy homes, cars, vacations, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the other is to give you control of your time, give you options, give you a sense of freedom and independence. Uh, those are like the two things, you, the two big things you can do with money. And to me, there's, per, particularly for people when they're young in their life, there's a, too much emphasis on the first bucket, on spending on stuff, which is, again, it's important, but there's almost no emphasis on the second part, which uh, to me, for the most number of people, particularly as they age and get older, having control of your time, having independence, being able to do what you want, when you want to do it, with who you want to do it, that is what money can really do for you uh, in, in a way that's going to give you a lasting level of happiness that I think is you are unlikely to get used to over time. You're unlikely to get accustomed to it and the joy, the thrill of it is less likely to wear off if you can wake up every day and have full control over your schedule. Love that, man. And I think this brings us so nicely onto one of the points which you talk about in the book where you say that wealth is everything that you don't see. And I guess that in this era of Lamborghinis and Ty Lopez's and fancy trainers and gold chains, can you talk to me about this idea? Because I guess that this goes against the heart of this Instagrammable culture. <laughs> I think that's true. It's the basic point that wealth is what you don't see, which is a really obvious point when you say it, when you, when you think about it, because the, what we see in the world are people's cars, people's homes, people's clothes or jewelry. That's what's visible. But wealth is everything that you have not spent. It's the money that you have saved, the money that you have invested, that you have not yet spent. And that's a very difficult thing because it's hard to find really good financial role models when wealth is what you don't see because we don't see people's bank accounts. We don't see their brokerage statements. All we see is what they've spent, spent money on, not what they've saved, invested, not their wealth. And it's very different if you're think, thinking about something like diet and exercise, where if you are someone who is in very good physical shape, or if you are someone who is very overweight, people can see that. It's visible. It's in your face. Money is very different. And there are people who look wealthy. They drive nice cars. They have big homes. But if you were to look in their bank accounts, they're not. They're not wealthy in the slightest. They're buried in debt. They're paycheck to paycheck, et cetera. And the opposite is true. You have people who don't look like they're anything successful financially at all. But if you did look, get a glimpse of their bank accounts, you would see that they're actually very wealthy. And because of that, they have total control, they have independence, they have control over their time, et cetera. These things that bring people a lot of happiness. So the fact that it is not visible is I think very easy to overlook. And it leads us to having a lot of 
false or poor or just no good role models for what we're doing, which is a really hard thing to do. There are a lot of people who it's not until there's a huge extreme event in their life, either uh, someone who you thought was wealthy goes bankrupt and then you hear about it and then you say, oh, that's like all my views of this person turned out to be wrong or someone who seems very humble, very almost poor, they die and end up leaving millions of dollars to charity and then you get to see their money. So the fact that it is hidden is I think a really critical part to understanding why it's hard to learn good financial habits and have a good financial role model. I love that you talk about someone that you never would have imagined, you know, having any wealth and then they die and leave millions because in the book you talk about, um, I think right at the start, you talk about Ronald James Reed, right? right. This guy that was a, a gas station attendant and that, you know, by the end of his life, he'd amassed an 8 million net worth. And I love these stories because I think they're so empowering because they show you don't need a PhD. You don't need inheritance. So I would love to pick up on that point. And I'd love to talk, say, about the Ronald James Reeds of the world. What would be some very fundamental behavioral skills for acquiring wealth? I think the first thing to point out is that there are almost no other fields where that is true, where someone with no financial education, no background, no training, no experience can do so well, even at the same time that people who have the best training, the best background can end up failing. There's no other field where that's the case, where there's such a gap between uh, experience and education and outcomes. And I think a lot of why that is, is because so much of what is important and matters in finance is not what you know, it's how you behave. So some of the traits that people like Ronald Reed and other, these other people who have no education but do very well with finance, it's just really basic things like patience. And you know, they're not, they're not, uh, they, they don't have a lot of overconfidence in their skills. They take a simple idea and they take it really seriously. So if you look at people like Ronald Reed, there are other stories. There's a woman named Grace Groner who has a very similar story. These people who have come from the humblest of backgrounds and die multimillionaires that they, give, they leave it all to charity. Basically what they do, the, the, the center of these stories is they lived below their means, they saved the difference, they invested in, uh, in, a, you know, in, a, in a long-term diversified way, and they left it alone for decades. That's it. There's no other secret. So the behavior that comes from that is, I think, a combination of uh, low ego, which is just a lack of overconfidence, and patience. That's it. And I think I, I, I would love to be able to expand on that for 30 minutes, but I don't think there's anything else to say. I think the fact that it is that simple is actually really important because when it is that simple to explain, just, oh, they were patient. People don't want to take it seriously. People want to say, well, it has to be more complicated than that. You should be able to speak about this, you know, write a whole book about how they did it. And the truth is, no, it's really simple. But the fact that it's simple is why people don't take it seriously. To me, I think the best financial advice that you can take for yourself or to give, every, or to give someone else is just to take a simple idea and take it very seriously and realize that there are no points awarded for difficulty in finance. Uh, and that some of the simplest things that you can do, like live below your means and be patient, uh, is 90% of what you need to know to do well over time in finance. Uh, but because it is so simple, particularly for educated people who have a lot of intellectual horsepower, those are the simple but powerful things are what they are most likely to ignore or discount, even if they matter the most. Uh, man, I, I absolutely love that. And that is getting clipped for our YouTube channel. One of the things in which um, I love is that in the book on this point, um, I guess we're kind of talking here about emotional management and regulation and re-delving into serious psychological stuff here. So I know in the book you talk about 
Um, I'm trying to remember the lady's name. I th- oh, sorry, the gentleman's name. I think it was Joseph Heller. And he was a, um, an author and he was on a remote island in discussion with a friend of a billionaire. And the friend quips that the billionaire made more in a single day than Heller's best book did. And he replies, yes, but I have something that he will never have. Enough. So I wonder on this point, can you talk about the importance of not getting the goalposts to move? I think not getting your goalposts to move uh, is the single most important but hardest financial skill. Because it gets back to what we were saying earlier, that if your expectations rise with your income, you go nowhere. And you're just kind of on this treadmill. And this is why the correlation between money and happiness, it's not that it's zero, but it's less than people would assume. Because when most people, if they're lucky enough to have money, their expectations rise at the same amount They increase the gaze of their aspirations by the same amount and they don't feel like they're that much better off. I think here's what's really important. If you or I were to win the lottery tomorrow and get a million dollars, as you and I sit here today, what we think about, why that would be so great to think about, and we would say, oh, that would be so wonderful if that happened. It's because when you and I sit here today, we are taking our current expectations and we are thinking about getting a million dollars more. So the gap is big. But when you actually get it, if you and I actually did win that million dollars, our expectations would instantly go up. And then once we got the check, once we cast the check, we would say, you know, this doesn't feel as good as I thought it would. So I think getting the goalposts to stop moving is critical. It's, but it's the hardest thing to do. I don't want to pretend like I'm an, an expert at this either. I think, I think no one is an expert at it. I think no one is, can perfectly keep the goalposts from, from stop moving. It's incredibly difficult. But I think if you are at least aware of it and know that it has to be part of your financial quiver, it has to be part of the skill set that you're working on, um, and then try to keep it as, not, not from moving at all, but try to keep it just below your rate of income growth, below your, your, the, the rise of your net worth over time, if you're lucky enough to, to get that, is the most critical financial skill. Otherwise, look, it's not necessarily bad if your income grow, grows and your expectations grow the same amount. Like that's not necessarily bad. It just takes away a lot of the expected benefit that you think you are going to get when you are imagining what it's going to be like to have a higher income or a higher net worth. So how big of a mistake would it be if my income suddenly takes a big jump up and then suddenly so do my expenses on, say, uh, depreciative assets? Is that, is that a mistake? You know, uh, it's, it, well, look, it's, it's, it's different for everyone. Uh, and it's not necessarily a, a mistake. Um, look, there are things that I do with my money that I can't explain to anyone else. That other people would say, That's, that looks crazy. I don't know why you're doing that. But it works for me. And I want to do it. And even if I can't explain it in a spreadsheet, it works for me. And there might be things that, that I mean, that's, that's true for everyone. It's true for you. It's true for every listener that we all do different things with our money that might look like a mistake to someone else. But if they, are, if they seem right to you and they're making you feel a little bit better, make feeling a little bit happier, then great. One of the things that I make in the book is the idea that we should not try to be rational with our money, which seems crazy. It seems counterintuitive. But I think a better aim is to just be reasonable with your money. Because when you aim to be rational, what you are saying is all of the, all of the figures should line up in a spreadsheet perfectly. This should be able to make mathematical sense down to the decimal point. I need to make textbook rational decisions. And I just think that's not how people think. People don't make financial decisions on a spreadsheet. They make them at the dinner table when they're speaking with their family, speaking with their spouse and all these other you know, incentives about people's behavior and people's goals, people's flaws mix into the equation in a way that's hard to summarize rationally on a spreadsheet. So I think if you're just aiming to be reasonable, that's the best that any of us can do. 
And it's not only the best that we can do. I mean, it's that, that I think is a really good goal to have. It's not settling for lower than you're capable of. I think that's just the most, that's the best goal in order to maximize being happy with your money. I want to pick up on that point. So how does, um, I want to focus on how emotions come into this because I've noticed that in my own life, when I read your book, I reflected on it, that I've made a lot of bad decisions financially. In fact, I would argue the majority of my bad financial decisions have all come from seeking instant gratification or sort of that lack of reason, which you sort of talk about. How can we become um, less uh, gratified with our decisions? You know, like, I mean, how can we sort of remove that instant gratification? Or is that even a problem with our money? I'd love to know your take on that. I, I don't think there's, there's a problem. Look, I like instant gratification as much as anyone else. It's not that, I think I, I keep needing to drive home because it's so important that none of these, these issues are black and white. So I like, I like nice cars. I like nice homes. I like all of that. But I think if you are, I think to me, the, the fundamental part is breaking down the, the two buckets that you can do with your money. One is you can have instant gratification. You can get the car, you can get the house, you can go out for dinner, whatever it is. The other is you can, you can have independence and control your time. The more that you at least think about and experience the joy of independence, then I think the more you are going to be likely to be able to delay that gratification. And it's not necessarily, and look, the quirk on this, the irony is I think having independence to me at least is instantly gratifying. Being able to, like, if I save money, that makes me a little bit more independent. And every day that I wake up and I feel independent, I'm gratified. So it's not, to me, it's just kind of shifting the mindset of, yeah, would a new car give me instant gratification? Yes. But does added independence give me instant gratification? That does too. So that balance will be different for everyone. But I think if you just shift your mindset into realizing that money that you save is not just a delayed material purchase. It does have an instant benefit today. You just have to think about it in a little bit more nuanced terms. I love that you give this um, argument of being reasonable over rational. The best argument for this I could put forward is that in my own life, health and fitness has been very important for me. And what I've noticed is that over time, when my motivation to go to the gym fades, I can trick myself by buying gym clothes that will carry me on going. Now, most people would say, or a waste of money. But for me, that, that, that works. And, you know, that's something I found. So I'd love to know, how, what is the relationship between emotions and accruing, say, financial wealth? Is there a correlation there between good and bad uh, decisions? How do you view that? I think, I think there's two points to make here. One is that all of us are different. So my emotions are going to be different from yours. Even if you and I have the same education, the same information, the same intelligence, we're going to come to totally different conclusions. You and I were raised in different countries. We live in different countries. If people are born in different generations. They're going to see the world through a different lens. And then therefore the emotions that they have when thinking about money are going to be very different, even among equally intelligent people. The other thing is, even if you're talking about yourself, the emotions that you experience over the course of your life are going to change significantly. So, I mean, to break this up in a couple of big buckets, if you are a young person who is looking for a mate, looking for a spouse, then your, your ability to socially signal that you are, you know, to put out a, a view of the world that you are in good shape and you're good looking and you're successful, that is a really important thing. That's not just material ego. It's, if you are using that social signaling in order to attract a spouse, then that's a great thing. 
After you are married with kids, it probably becomes less of a thing. And then what is really important to you is just taking care of your family and having a good stable home and being able to send your kids to the school you want. That's what's really important to you. And then as you age, it's, can I have the retirement that I want? Can I retire when I want to and have the dignified retirement that I need to? So even in the course of your own life, to, you know, to say nothing of how we all differ from person to person, but in your own life, it's gonna change throughout the course of your life. And I always try to keep that in mind that when I write this book this year, I might look at this in 10 years in the lens of my own household finances and disagree with a lot of it. I think that's almost inevitable. And that doesn't bother me just because it's just an acknowledgement that I'm going to change. My emotions are going to change. My goals are going to change. I'm going to learn. Of course, that's the case. So I think just the important thing to realize with emotions is that just realizing that it's a, it's a fluid state and things are always going to change and to be okay with the fact that things change and realizing that changing your mind, changing your goals, changing your opinions does not mean that you were wrong in the past. It doesn't mean that you made a mistake. It's just the normal dynamics of life. Love it, man. Love it. And I really appreciate the nuanced argument because obviously everyone is different. Um, so I guess if finance and say um, personal wealth is more psychology than physics, as you point out in the book, like say, you know, a psychology against laws and rules. Um, I struggle to find a feeling which IQ then could be so loosely correlated. And I'm sure that history could provide a litany of examples of very intelligent people doing very stupid things with their money. So I would love to know, what are some of the reasons why people do dumb stuff with their money? I think one of the biggest is this idea that, look, in most fields, there is a correlation between intelligence, hard work, and outcome. If you are very smart and if you work very hard, you will do better. Almost every field that is the case, whether we are talking medicine, sports, whatever it is, a lot of training, a lot of effort, a lot of mental horsepower, a lot of sophistication and complexity, you're going to do better. Investing is just one of the few fields, maybe one of the only fields where that's not the case. And because it's not the case, because there's no correlation between effort and outcomes, by and large, the majority of the time, uh, it's not intuitive. I think it is more intuitive for people to think, if I work really hard, if I put in all of this effort, if I stay up till two in the morning with my spreadsheet trying to pick the best stocks, I'm going to do better. And the, like, it's not, it's not 0%, but the huge majority of the time, they're probably going to end up doing worse. I just think the fact that that is not intuitive is what screws people up. It's not that people are not smart enough to do well at investing. I think a lot of times it's because they're too smart. They're too clever by half. And they're trying to put in more effort that is needed in a way that is really frustrating to them because it is so the opposite of how almost everything else works in life. I think that's a lot of the reason. Another reason is that I think very smart people can come up with elaborate stories about what's gonna happen in the economy, what's gonna happen in the stock market. They can create these narratives in their head about how the economy works and how the stock market works that make a lot of sense and seem really sophisticated, but the smartest person in the world is not one one millionth smart enough to understand the complexity of the global economy. No one is, not a single person. It's the most complicated beast in the world that we have. And there's no way that any one person could wrap their head around the social dynamics and the changes of moods across 7 billion people that have such an influence. Uh, changes in politics, random events that have a huge impact like COVID-19. Uh, I think no one can really wrap their head around the complexity of that. But if you're a smart person, you, you try to. So I, th I think this is why, you know, you know, are there, are, you know, like in finance, are there people who are very successful at, at finance who are also very intelligent? 
Yes, of course. Like lots of them. This is not, but the fact that there are people who are not quote unquote intelligent, who don't have the training, sophistication, whatnot, that still do well to me is just the proof that you need to realize that the correlation between effort and intelligence and outcomes in finance is not nearly what it is in other fields. You mentioned politics for the last three elections. I can remember in my own country, I've always been told the outcome of this is going to make or break your finances. And I've personally found that in every makes much difference. But every time the election comes around, it's the narrative which is always espoused. So I wonder just how big of a role does politics actually play in accruing personal wealth? Look, this is, this is what I would say all the time, not just in 2020, not just for Donald Trump, not just for Brexit, but in general, we way overestimate the influence of any single president on stock market returns. In general, that's the case. It's not to say that presidents don't have any influence. That's, that's not the point. It's just that we overestimate how much it is. And the evidence for that is that the long history of very smart people forecasting, if this guy wins the election, here's what the stock market's going to do. If this person wins the election, here's the industries you should buy. The track record of those predictions is so bad. It is so horrendous, even among very smart people who made predictions that make a lot of sense, that to me, like, I, I just can't take any of them seriously anymore. Let me give you a couple of examples. When George W. Bush was elected president in 2000, a lot of people said, uh, you know, his tax cuts are going to spur travel. So buy the airline stocks and, and he's going to deregulate the bank. So buy bank stocks. Well, by 2008, virtually all the airlines were bankrupt. The banks were bankrupt uh, because, of, because of the financial crisis and the, the airlines went out of business because of September of the 11th. These things that people could not have seen, but that's the point. The fact that there's these, all these other variables that are so much more important than anything a single president can do that are gonna have such an impact on outcomes is, is, is really important. It was the same in 2008 when, when, when Barack Obama won, where a lot of people said, oh, he's gonna do like the Green New Deal, buy solar companies, buy alternative energy companies, which were like the worst investments you could have possibly made back then. Because even though, yes, he was putting forth policies that were benefiting renewable energy companies. It didn't make that much of a difference if you factor in competition from solar panels from China, the price declines that took place, all these other variables that had a much bigger impact on returns. So look, is the election this year in 2020 that takes place uh, in the United States in just over a month, I can't believe it's so short, is that, is that going to have an, an impact on the economy? My gosh, yes. Huge impact. Will it impact the economy? Like, yes, probably. But I know with near certainty that there are going to be other news stories over the next year and over the next four years, or maybe the next eight years, that matter more uh, than, and then, than whether who is elected more. Which is, and the other thing that's important here is that if you are truly a long-term investor, you should be thinking about not what's gonna happen over the next one or four years, but you should be thinking about what's gonna happen over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and so for me, it's not like, even if I think that who wins the election is gonna impact the economy, it, it will not change how I invest at all. Uh, not because I don't have political views, I do. Not because I don't think it's going to hurt the economy or help the economy, I do. But I'm just focusing on a much longer period that doesn't, is not anchored to what happens in this election cycle. And on this point, I know that you say in the book that if I had to summarize money success in a single word, it would be survival. And yep. I think that you make a great case that, look, capitalism is hard in part because making money and keeping it are two separate skills. So I'd love to know on this point, what are 
the differences between getting wealthy and staying wealthy in terms of the skills or the mindset required to make it and keep it? I've often thought people should save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. And the reason is because, look, if you look at the long course of history, of course you should be an optimist. I think that's a good takeaway for anyone that over, if you're looking at a 50 or 100 year period, there's such a long history of people solving problems, getting more productive, figuring out new ways to do things, moving ahead, growing the economy. That's, that's, that's a story of modern, of modern history. But the other part of the story of modern human history is that it is an almost constant, never-ending chain of recessions, bear markets, wars, pandemics, presidential assassinations. Go on down the list. The world is constantly breaking. The world is constantly falling apart, even among this wider backdrop of a tremendous amount of progress. So if you view those like that barbell view of history, a lot of progress amid constant chaos, you should save like a pessimist because you need to be able to survive the short run, to survive the recessions, the bear markets, the pandemics, et cetera, all the bad news that is constantly bombarding us with. But you should invest like an optimist because you know that people are going to solve problems and do well over time. And the other thing is that investing only works when compounding works. Compounding is what really fuels long-term investing success. And compounding is something that takes place not over one or five years, but 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's when compounding gets ridiculous and the gains get huge. So the only way that you are going to be able to be able to invest for 20, 30, 40 years is if you have the durability uh, to survive the short-term ups and downs that we're all going to face, job losses, medical emergencies, whatever it is. You need to be able to survive those so that you are able to actually stay invested for a long period of time. Charlie Munger, the great investor, has a good quote that I love where he sums this up, where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. That's why you need to, uh, the, the, the difference between getting rich and staying rich is that getting rich requires swinging for the fences, being an optimist. Staying rich requires a sense of almost paranoia about the short term that you need to be able to survive. I love that. And I remember when I was very young, I think I was 14 or 15. And I remember reading books like, say, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by someone like Robert Kiyosaki. And I remember reading all these finance books. And they seem to be very, um, you know, swing for the fences at all costs. So I would love to turn this to you. And I'd love to, you know, put it to you like this. What would be your case for saving money? Oh, man, I can't hear you one second. You've got mute. You've got mute one second. How about that? Oh, you're there we are. Back. We're here. To me, the argument for saving money is simply this. If you look at history, I, I'm a big history fan. If you look at history, the most important news stories, the most important historical events are things that no one could have possibly seen coming, that no one could have possibly predicted, no matter how smart and reformed they were. They were. COVID-19, uh, the 2008 financial crisis, September 11th, fall of the Soviet Union, Vietnam War, World War II, Great Depression, go on down the list. The biggest events are things that nobody sees coming. And that is really important to think about a saving philosophy because most people, when they think about saving money, they more or less say, well, I'm saving for this event that I can foresee. I need a new car, so I'm going to save for that. I want a down payment for a house, so I'm going to save for that. It's not that that's wrong. Of course, that's great. But what I think people need to save for is the things that they cannot see. And it's difficult to do because when the world seems like it's going great and everything's working in your favor, it's hard to be able to say, well, I'm going to save for this emergency that I can't see coming. Because when things are going great, you think you can see the future. You just extrapolate the goodness and everything feels like it's going to be great. But if, to me, just if you have any feel for history, then you know that we are constantly being thrown curveballs that no one sees coming that you need to be able to prepare for. So I think that the savings just gives you a sense of, it gives you options in your life. 
and it gives you more control over your destiny when things turn south. And things always turn south. That's the whole story of history. So to me, it's just uh, saving for things that you're not thinking about, which is a hard thing to do because it seems reckless. What am I saving this money for? I'm not, I don't have any big events coming up. But it's a, if you can shift your mindset a little bit and realize that every important event in history that moved the needle are things that no one saw coming, then you're a little bit more likely to be able to say, save for things that you cannot even fathom yourself today. I'd love, so I feel as if we've zoomed out and we've um, looked at so many different great concepts, um, you know, from quite afar. I'd love to get really granular with you by you. Let's get into the micro. So one thing which for me has worked really well is whenever I've had great temptation to buy something, I've said to myself, okay, I will wait 48 hours. If I still want it after 48 hours, then I'll buy it. A lot of the times, maybe 56% of the time, I never end up buying it. Do you have a psychological hack which you have used similar to that which you have found to be very effective for yourself? I don't know if I I have a hack because... My wife and I spend money on, on what we want, but the key is that we don't, we don't want that much. So it's not, it's not that, it's not that, that difficult. Um, what, what would be a good, a good hack though? I think, uh, ah, that's a, that's, that's a really good question. I, I think probably for a lot of things, for investing decisions too, having someone that you trust, but who is not in the same emotional state as you are, which means not your spouse, not your partner, not your kids. If you can run those decisions past them, to someone who is not in the same emotional state than you are. Because so many financial decisions, both if you're purchasing goods or if you're purchasing stocks and you know, making an investment, are driven by emotions. And if you can get someone's advice who is not as emotional as you are, and everyone is emotional with their own money, then I think you're making a big step forward in terms of having some sort of gap between that. There's a great financial advisor who I like named Carl Richards who says, the purpose of a financial advisor is to put a gap between you and stupid. That's the purpose of what they do. And I think that's really, that's really, and even if it's not a professional financial advisor, even if it's just a friend of yours, that you could say, hey, I'm thinking about buying this. What do you think about that? I think a lot of times your friends will say, why do you need that? Or I, I bought that and it wasn't very good. Or you're going to love that. Of course, that's a great purchase that you should make. I think just get, having that, that second set of eyes on it is really, is really crucial. So I, I mean, I, 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 there's, there's a handful of friends that I have that I do this with as well, particularly like for my own investing decisions and, and decisions on when I move and buy a house, things like that, that have been really clarifying for me. Because no one, no matter how hard they try, can be unemotional about their own lives and their own money. I know that so much of this stuff is subjective. So I would love to make this specifically about you for this question. What are some of the things that you are simply not worth willing to risk to acquire wealth? There's a, there's a great quote that I love from Warren Buffett that I use in the book where he says, if you, uh, if you risk what you need and able to gain what you don't need, that, that is foolish. That, that is ridiculous. You should never risk what you need and able to gain what you don't need. So what do I, what do I need in my house? Just my personal, my, my personal. I, one of the points I write about in the book is that we don't have a mortgage on our house, which is the worst financial decision you could possibly make because you can get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage for 2.9% in the United States. Why would I possibly pay off the house? Because for me, what matters so much in life is that no matter what happens, the world falls apart. My career falls apart, whatever it is. My two young kids and my wife, we have this house ain't going nowhere. No one's going to take this house from us. No matter what happens. I don't want to risk that. There's no amount of gain 
that I could have in my career or in my investments that would be worth it to be able to have any chance of having my house foreclosed on my four-year-old son and one-year-old daughter. No, 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 never, 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 never. I want the odds to be 0.0%. I think that's, that's kind of thing. So that's a decision that I can't rationalize on paper. I can't show you on a spreadsheet. Here's why it makes sense to pay off your mortgage. No, 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 you can't do that. But I think for me, if, I, if I'm thinking about what, what am I willing to risk and what is the worst case scenario in my life that I want to avoid at all costs, then it's a pretty easy decision for me. I think, that's, I think that's really it. I think the other big thing for my career and anyone's career is your reputation, just everything. It's, so, it's one of those things, of course, that you're not going to realize how important it was until it's gone. And once it's gone, you're going to say, oh my gosh, it was everything. That was my, it was not my intelligence. It wasn't the skills that I had. It was my reputation. That was all that mattered in my career. So that's, of course, something that you should never under any circumstances risk. And in order to, there's no amount of gain that's going to be worth playing that because at that point, you're playing Russian roulette. Like, yes, there might be an upside. You might, you know, win the bet, whatever it is. But if the, if the downside is catastrophic, like, no, 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 I, I, want, I want nothing to do with that. I love that, man. And look, and I appreciate we're running out of time. So I'll wrap this up with a couple of uh, quick fire questions. So this is obviously called the Freedom Pact. So, man, could you talk to me about freedom and how controlling your time is the highest dividend the money pays? I think, you know, there's this great quote that I like from, uh, from Franklin Roosevelt, who, when he was a child, had a very structured day. His, even when he was five years old, it was, you wake up at, at 6 a.m. and then you do your tutoring at 8 a.m. It was a very structured. And when he was like six or seven years old, he came to his mom and said, I hate that I, my life is dominated by rules. I just want to be, I just want to be free. My, I'm so, you know, stuck in these rules. And FDR's mom said, okay, tomorrow you can do whatever you want all day. No rules, no schedule, whatever you want to do, just go do it. The next day, his mom wrote in her journal that FDR woke up and did his exact same normal routine at the same time, which was just to say that it wasn't that he didn't like the structure that he had. It was that he didn't like someone else telling him when he should wake up and when to do it. And even if he was on his own terms, he liked that better. People do not like being, uh, like people like freedom and control. And so when I say control your time, I don't necessarily mean that you can retire early. Maybe that's the case for some people. But most people, if they have full financial independence and they can wake up and do whatever they want to do, most days they're going to wake up and say, I want to go to work today. That's what you want to do. But the fact that you're doing it on your own terms, working when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want to, living in the city, in the neighborhood that you want to, that's going to make all the difference in the world. As soon as, soon as you are on someone else's demand, I think a lot of the pleasure that we get from doing the tasks that we might otherwise like tends to go away. And if you can, even if you just know subconsciously in your head that you can, you have the option that if you don't like this job, you can go find another one. You can quit and do something else. If you just know that in your head, it gives you a sense of control that I think brings, well, here's what's important. It doesn't necessarily bring people happiness. It removes a lot of misery. It removes a lot of latent misery that we all have when we are under someone else's control, that once it is gone, even if it's not making us net happier, removing that sense of misery, I think is a way to just improve your life that is generally overlooked. I love it, man. So the conversation for today's conversation has been The Psychology of Money, your latest book, which is a very aesthetic book I want to add. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So I would love to turn this back to you and say, what books have greatly impacted your life? Uh, you know, several. One that, you know, uh, really stuck with me. Well, here, here's two that really stuck with me. One is a book by a guy named, named Dan Gardner who wrote a book called The Science of Fear. Uh, it's a really well-written book. 
it's not, I, I don't think it was a huge bestseller, but it should have been. It's a very good book that just talked, I mean, the, the title is, is descriptive. It talks about how we think about fear, which not just investing, but for all areas of our life is a really the dominant emotion. Politics, relationships, business, investing, finance, it's, that's, that's, the, the, that's the emotion that rules the day. And he really goes into depth about how we think about fear and how we can think about it in a more productive way, in a way that really stuck with me. The other is a book by a guy named Sam Arbsman who wrote a book called The Half-Life of Facts which another very descriptive title, facts have a half-life and things that we think are undeniably, unequivocally true across disciplines over time get, either get kind of washed away, they get kind of priced out or we realize that they were just wrong to begin with. True for every field, even the hard sciences, there are things that we realize we thought we knew and over time we realize that that's not necessarily true. That just gave me a lot of humility that I didn't have the book about, yes, you can really have really firm beliefs about how things work, uh, but always being open-minded to the fact that you might be wrong or that things are going to change, I think is so critical. So those two books really stuck with me. Besides obviously buying your book, which will be linked below in the description, what would be a quick fire tip or a bit of advice that someone listening can implement today that you would have for our listeners? I think the best thing that you can do with money, the two most things you can do is lower your ego and be more patient. The simplest advice in the world that is going to move the needle the most over the course of your life with your finances. I'll say one other thing that I think is true. There are two fields which it doesn't matter if you're not interested in them, they are interested in you. And everyone has, I think, an obligation to learn about them. The two fields are health and money. It doesn't matter if you're not interested in health, it doesn't matter if you're not interested in money, they are interested in you. They're going to catch up with you one way or another. You can't avoid those two fields. So I think all of us have an obligation to have at least some sort of working knowledge about those two things. And of course, money is my, my field, my specialty. Uh, but the, 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 those two things, I think this is a topic that's not just for people who are interested in it, but truly for everybody. Man, I love it. And before we tell these guys where they can connect with you and any closing messages, my last question that we ask on all of our podcasts is, what makes a life worth living? Look, I'm, I, I have two young kids, as I mentioned. If you, so my, my oldest is four years old. If you had asked me that question five years ago, I would have given you a different answer. But now that I'm a parent, I think I can speak for virtually every parent. As soon as your first child is born and they hand it to you, nothing, nothing else matters. Nothing else in the world matters. And even if I were to think about my career right now, what is, what is important to me in my career? Well, being successful so I can support my kids, so I can support my family. Nothing else matters once you have kids. That's my answer. Other people will give you different answers. But for me personally, what is the meaning of a good life? To me, it's raising good kids. Man, I love it. That was a beautiful answer. Um, can you tell these guys where they can connect with you, closing messages about the book, anything else you'd like these guys to know and take away? Most of where I spend my time is on Twitter. My handle is Morgan Housel, my first and last name. The book, The Psychology of Money is out. It should be available all over the world right now. Uh, hope you enjoy it. But if you, but if you don't, that's okay too. Teach their own. <laughs> <laughs> man, I love it. Morgan, this was such a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Well, guys, that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. What a run we've been on lately from Douglas Murray to Seth Godin to Stephen Pressfield to the Buddhist monks which Lewis interviewed to Dave Rubin and now Morgan Housel. What a ride we are on so far and let me tell you there are big big things coming 
for 2021. I can promise you that. Guys, if you want to keep seeing this show grow, we're on a, an unbelievable ride at the moment. Our YouTube channel is growing every day. Our newsletter list which we send out is growing all the time. If you want to support us, then you can subscribe to our newsletter, the Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter, which goes out once a week on a Monday. There's a link for that below. You could subscribe to our YouTube channel. That would really mean a lot to us. We would love if you would consider leaving us a five-star iTunes review. As honestly, you wouldn't believe the amount of guests which we reach out to and they say, we want 500 or 750 five-star iTunes reviews. Those things really do matter. Um, and then lastly, the best thing in which you could do is to share it with a friend. You know, if you enjoy this, then I'm sure you've got a friend that would enjoy our content. We want to grow this show to be as big as we can to make as much damage in the world as we can with this great content which we've got. Guys, thank you so, so much for your attention, for interacting with us, for all the support to get where we are. It truly means the world to us. We will see you in the next episode on Monday.